Well, it's good to see you here. It's glad you have avoided the plague or have recovered from the plague and you are now here with us based on the numbers. I think a lot of people are sick and out of town, unfortunately, but uh, we shall survive another flu season yet. <clears throat> uh, our theme this year has been the theme of called and finding our purpose in God's plan. And one of the things that I'm wanting to do throughout this year from time to time is, is address what God's calling is for us as Christians. What has he called us to do? But in the same way, I want to spend some time throughout the year not only addressing those things, but also addressing uh, our purposes in, in worship. Uh, I believe it is easy for worship to turn into a ritual, just something you do. Uh, and lose the meaning and the reason and the purpose why we do the things we do, particularly on a Sunday morning gathering. Uh, this really comes to light over the, about the past year and a lot of uh, discussions that I've had with some friends of mine and other preachers and church leaders and things like that in, in having different discussions about why we do the things we do like you know why is there a closing prayer and why why do these kinds of things that that often the answer would come out well I don't know and that's a big deal <laughs> there, there should be no reason that we do things just because well I guess that's the way we've always done it I suppose that's the thing we need to do. Uh, you may have noticed then really over the last few months, I did quite a few different lessons on the Lord's Supper and trying to zero in on that and wanting to, to really hit the idea that there's a very important purpose behind uh, the Lord's Supper. And we used Exodus, we used 1 Corinthians 11, we've used a couple of different passages throughout the, the past few months to really speak to uh, the importance of the Lord's Supper, that we won't look at it as some kind of ritual or sacrifice. Or, or some kind of thing that, that we do as something out of habit or routine. I really just kind of want to say at the outset that everything that we do uh, is purposeful. There really should never be something as part of our worship before God that we perceive as some kind of checklist or some kind of required act. The reason why that should be very striking to us is if you remember when you come to the prophecy of Malachi, you have in those days the Jewish people are doing all the form of worship. They're going to the temple. And they're doing all their offerings. And they're doing everything that God appears to have asked them to do. And yet one of the most stunning declarations is God says, I wish they would close the doors. I don't want any more of it. And all the form was there. They did everything externally exactly as it seemed that God wanted them to. And yet God didn't want a bit of it. Because they didn't have purpose. They didn't have reason. They didn't have heart. They didn't have understanding. They just did it. And it's a grave warning to us that we wouldn't fall into the same trap. By the way, when you come into the New Testament, what do you see Jesus dealing with? The Pharisees are doing the exact same thing. They have forgotten the bigger elements of the law like mercy and, and justice. And yet they are keeping all the minutia of the law. They are tithing. They are keeping all these various elements and here Jesus condemns them for doing that. And so the reason behind worship and what we do in worship 
and having a heart behind it is of the utmost importance. For if we do not understand what we are doing, then everything that we are doing in this hour is for no reason at all. And that's why then throughout this year, we're going to spend our time talking about a number of different aspects of worship. Unfortunately, I think one of the things that has happened in trying to answer the question, well, why do we pray and have a sermon and do the Lord's Supper and have a collection and do all the various things that we do in, in, our, in our worship? There's been a, an answer that you probably heard as a kid growing up. It's an answer that I've heard for the longest time and heard as a kid growing up. Well, because there's five acts of worship. <laughs> okay, where's that verse? Uh, uh, that's kind of been the default answer. Well, there's five acts of worship. And here's why that is a problem to our thinking. is because the concept sets up for us that you haven't worshipped God unless you've done these five things. And if you fall anything short of it, there is no worship and we cannot go past it or before it. And it really almost harbors the idea of Worship is a checklist of the things that we need to get done. So as long as we have had a collection, had a Lord's Supper, had a prayer and a sermon and songs, well, let's get out of here. So, you know, if we can just kind of boil this down to about 20 minutes, we can just kind of zoom through. God will be happy we got all five knocked out. That is a great danger of what happens with that kind of thinking. Never mind the fact that we could say, you know what? Uh, Brent's really long-winded today, so let's just not have any songs, and we're going to have a one-hour sermon. Well, that'd be fine. No, it's not for you, I know, but (laughs) Uh, that would be fine. You'd say, okay, we're just going to have the the Scripture read today instead of of a sermon. We can have all kinds of, uh, of elements of what we're doing in our worship. It is important for us to recognize that worship needs to have intentionality to it. And so, again, I want to be able to put reason and I want to put understanding and purpose behind a lot of the things that we do. One of them that I think is really important, as was read for us, that I think is useful to talk about, is concerning the collection. I remember as a kid always having a very big question about that. Uh, And it is, I think, an important text to consider because 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you're not there already, if you have your Bibles open to that text, 1 Corinthians 16 is really the basis of all that we have in the New Testament in terms of a collection, in terms of giving. And we need to make sure that we put it in its original context and understand what was going on at that time and why Paul gave that direction so that we can properly apply it to ourselves and understand what we are supposed to do with that. You'll notice in the first verse of 1 Corinthians 16, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. One of the things that immediately should jump off the page are the first two words. Now concerning. Paul uses that phrase a number of times in his first letter to the Corinthians. And it always sets off that what he is doing is answering some kind of question that the Corinthians have asked of him or have written to him. You see that like in chapter 7. Now concerning. And then you just keep doing that. It could be concerning idols. He's concerned all about these different things. He's addressing a concern that they have. They're doing something and he's now 
now trying to clarify some sort of question. We've all read 1 Corinthians and wish we had the list of questions of exactly how they phrased what they were asking Paul. So we go, oh, that makes more sense as to what you were answering. We're on the receiving end and, and listening to what Paul says as an answer in regards to some kind of question regarding the collection for the saints. The second observation we should make, and I think it's it's fairly obvious, but it's rather important to, to state, is that there was a collection. And the reason why that's important to state is I, I've heard plenty of arguments to say, well, there's just an absolutely no authority or example of a, of a congregation having a treasury or having a collection. But that's exactly what this Corinthian church had. They're asking a question about it. They're asking a question in terms of the details about how this is all supposed to unfold in regards to the collection that they are gathering. What are we supposed to do about that? Whatever the specific question was about that collection, they already have it going on such that they're asking Paul and saying, now we have a question about what we are doing. And Paul answers, now concerning that collection for the saints, here's what I'm giving to you as I've told other churches in Galatia to do, this is what I'm telling you to do also. And so this is the point of clarity that is being given. Notice the rest of that verse that it says it is for the saints. That is really important. (laughs) That is a really important statement that is being made there. That this is now given for the saints. Now, important to recognize the word saint just means Christian. It's not You don't have to be dead and holy or something like that to be a saint. Uh, saints in the scriptures always refer to Christians. It's just referring to them. This is a collection for Christians. What we see going on in the New Testament is back in Jerusalem, there is a, a severe trial of famine going on. And what Paul is doing is beginning to gather funds from other Christians and other churches so that he can take it to these destitute Christians who are in Jerusalem. That's one of the things you'll kind of see him doing when you read some of the letters. And of course, when you read the book of Acts, his movements as well, is what he's doing is going from various churches and he's collecting these funds to be able to help these needy Christians who are in Jerusalem. It is important to underscore, we never see any command or example or, or reason whatsoever in the New Testament to indicate that the collection that was taken up would ever be used for non-Christians. It's just, it's, it's just never there. The work of doing good to the poor and those who are non-Christians falls on us as individuals. And I want to underline that. Because so often what we can do is we can read, okay, well, the collection of the church is not supposed to be used for for the poor and those who are on the outside and non-Christians. So therefore, we kind of can wash our hands and go, okay, so we just do nothing. (laughs) No, that bears upon us as individuals, as, as Paul would say, in doing good to all, especially the household of faith. That we have that responsibility as individuals to do good as we have opportunities. There are people who genuinely need our help and assistance, whether it be by, by time or effort or finance or whatever it is, that we would be the ones as individuals to go about in, in doing that. What we do see in the book of Acts is that the collection was always used for helping needy Christians, destitute Christians, or the money is being used for teaching, either teaching the lost or teaching other Christians. Uh, We have fancy words for that. You might have heard evangelism, edification, and benevolence. Now you know three fancy words about this. Essentially, helping destitute Christians, 
and teaching. Teaching the lost and teaching those who, who are Christians. That's all we ever see the money used for. And that's important that verse Corinthians 16 fits right along with that. We could go lots of places and show that same idea like in Acts 3. Uh, but to simplify it enough, what you see here in verse 1 is that this collection was to be used for these Christians who were destitute in Jerusalem. Now what Paul is, is driving at here, you'll notice in verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting. When I come and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. What is the big deal that Paul is concerned about here in verse 2? And it appears to me the really big deal is that Paul wants purposeful, thoughtful giving. When he arrives in Corinth and he wants to be able to gather this money up to go to Jerusalem to help the needy Christians that are there, what he doesn't want is everybody goes, oh no, Paul's here. And they all start reaching in their pockets and trying to find where they can get something to be able to give Paul so that he has something to give. That's not his interest. He is interested in purposeful and thoughtful giving, and that's what you see see going on there. In fact, that's what's interesting in the second letter. You see Paul hit the same idea again. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He didn't want to come there and twist their arm and go, okay, everybody, let me get everything out of you that you have because I'm on my way to Jerusalem. He wanted it to be from the heart. In fact, that's what God has always wanted, is that the giving would be from the heart. We've seen that in the book of Exodus. When they come to build the tabernacle, God says anybody who would want to do a free will offering, as I was described, who desired to do it from the heart. That God has always wanted it to be from the heart. God has never been in the point of trying to extract money out of His people. He owns it all. It's not that he needs it, you know, that that we would be under that kind of compulsion. This is supposed to be joyful stewardship is what is being pictured by Paul and is being pictured throughout the New Testament. That one of the things that we see and is often mentioned as we take up the collection each week is that we recognize that everything that we have has come from God. That we have an awareness of that. That everything that we have, every blessing that we enjoy, every physical thing that we have comes from the very hand of God. The offering is not some kind of weekly dues or cost of admission or annual membership. This isn't Costco or something like that where you got to pay in and then now you can enter the doors. It is that there is a recognition on our part that we observe all that God has done for us, which then turns around generates a desire for us to give to God. That we understand everything that we have is from God. Never mind the fact. When we read those words like in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, as it's put on the board, that God loves a cheerful giver. Just think about that idea. Don't think about the cheerful giver part. Often we underscore the cheerfulness. Underscore who God loves. That's what God's getting at. Is this is the kind of heart that God loves. 
And I want to be somebody that God loves, and so do you. And we want to be people that God will look down upon, and that's the kind of heart He desires. And so when we read something like that, it certainly puts us into our heart and to recognize that we want to be pleasing to God and that God loves a cheerful giver. And that becomes then our desire is that we don't want to do it out of compulsion. We don't want to do it reluctantly. We don't want to do it as some kind of arm twisting or something that's painful or I guess I have to kind of thing. That's not what God wants. And that's never our request. But it's just an opportunity for us to give in recognition of what God has done for us. I think it's important to point out another thing here. The tithe is never commanded in the New Testament. Uh, I'm fascinated how often churches will bang the gavel on tithing. And yet that is not in the New Covenant. That is not anything that we find under the New Testament. That was something that was given to Israel back under the Old Covenant and not something that is described here. In fact, you'll notice verse 2 describes the measurement by which you are to give. Notice he says, as you have prospered, as you have received. It's variable. What you have received, there is a picture then based on what God has given to you, what God has prospered to you, then that is what you are able then to give to God. There's no amount, there's no percentage ever required in the New Testament. As much as we've prospered, then we give in in accord to that prosperity. And so we may prosper much, we may prosper little. And you watch that ebb and flow happen. I remember as a kid growing up in San Diego and and when the recession of the, the early 90s hit, it hurt hard out there because it's a military city out there, especially back at that time. And it hurt everybody back then to go through that recession. And people had nothing. You give according to what you have. You give according as to you've been prospered. And there will be times where we're doing well. And there may be times we are jobless and we're not doing well. And notice it's given as that variable. As you've prospered, so you give. There's not a fixed percent. There's not a fixed amount. God is desiring a heart that wants to give. In fact, you'll notice in verse 2, he says something that I think is also important. He uses the statement, each of you is to put aside something and store it up. And I think that each of you is very important in this purpose as well. That what we are seeing is that this is something that is an individual act. It speaks of a personal act. It is a decision that is done of the heart, of the own will, and is done individually amongst our, of ourselves. Uh, it's in contrast to how the Lord's Supper is described. When we look at 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11 is describing the Lord's Supper, and you'll notice the repetition, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. The Lord's Supper was a together act. In fact, we have a word, communion. It's together that we do this. That's an important image of what is happening in our togetherness in God, with God as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We don't see that kind of direction in regards to this giving. It is not a corporate act, but an individual act of worship. Each of us, or each of you, as the text says, is to put something aside and say. Now, if you read this, an interesting angle has often taken here that I want to address. 
You'll notice that verse 2 doesn't say anything about storing it at the church. And so people have come along and said, well, here's what this is saying, is that each of you on the first day of the week, you store it up in your own home. And then when Paul got there, then that would be given. And that's how you're supposed to do that. And it might seem logical. There's two reasons why that appears to not be the case. Number one, you'll notice in verse two what the Apostle Paul says, I don't want there to be any collecting when I come. So if everybody just stores it up at home, then what's going to happen when Paul got there? There's going to be a collecting when he comes. It's the very thing he's trying to prevent. He wants this to be set aside on a weekly basis so that when he does arrive, there will no longer have to be any collection. It will already be ready so he can take that amount and whatever messenger is going to go to Jerusalem, they can go and do it. And so it wouldn't work to be able to do it at home. Second, why would you say to do it on the first day of the week if you're supposed to only do it at home? What what would it matter what day it was? Just do it any old day you want to. I'll just set aside my money on Tuesday. You know, what, 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 what different? Why would it be on the first day of the week except that's when the Christians were coming together and you were bringing the offering? That would be the logical reasoning why that we would say to do this on the first day of the week. By the way, this is one of the few places that we have in the New Testament that gives us a very strong picture that Christians gathered on the first day of the week. You know, we're entering into this realm right now of go to church on Saturday, you know, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Monday morning. If you meant, you know, we got kind of worship almost any time at this point. And that's not what you see in the New Testament. The Christians gathered on Sunday. That was called the Lord's Day in Revelation 1. That's when they came together. And that's what's being highlighted here is this very idea of why would you then do this on the first day of the week, except that's exactly when they would come together. And I think that's important to just underscore for a minute. Why do that? Why bring all that about? is because this is their opportunity to be able to give. There was no other way to do it. How else were you going to be able to give to the congregation, to the church collection, so that when Paul came, the money would already be there and they could take this money to Jerusalem? How else would you do it? Except you would give it when you went to worship. I hope that makes kind of logical sense. That's just kind of how else would you have got the money into a collection of all the saints together, all the Christians together, so that when Paul arrived there in Corinth, they could take it to Jerusalem. Well, you'd have to bring it on Sunday. That's what you'd have to do. So that seems to be the most logical thing. What you are seeing Paul say is that he wants these Christians then to purpose in their heart what they will give and then bring that offering on the first day of the week because there was no other way to do it. That's what I want you to do. Set it aside. Each of you make this determination of yourself and decide what you're going to give and then bring that so that when Paul comes, it will already be ready and all that then can be taken to Jerusalem. Now, in talking about that, I want to talk about some of the practical considerations that come up. I want to talk about a lot of questions that come up with with this. I'm trying to think of as many questions as I could that comes up with this. If you 
think of something I missed, I'm happy to kind of come back around and try to catch it again. I try to just think of all the questions I've ever heard or questions that I personally had in my lifetime, actually, uh, about this and how to try to address some of these considerations. Uh, one of the things that I think was interesting, I just tried to do some research on, on, on the, the historicity of, of this idea, is that what you see historically as well as in the scriptures seems to always be an idea of a collection box. You might recognize that in the New Testament in Jesus' day. One of the things that he actually criticizes some of the Pharisees for doing was making a show out of their giving. And if you remember what you see historically, like there was these horn-shaped collections. And so you can make it really loud <laughs> when you gave your, your coinage. You can really make a bang with it. And so one of the things that you see even in the New Testament was that there would be a, just a basic collection box. Uh, the Greco-Roman world did the same in their pagan temples. They just simply had collection boxes. I found this fascinating. It wasn't, at least in America, it wasn't until the turn of the century of the 1900s that baskets were passed around. That the long historical record has been there was just a box. I think we've all even talked about, you know, you could just put a box in the back. You could. In fact, that's kind of the way it was always done for a long time. It's more of a recent tradition of of passing a plate and, and, and passing a basket. If you've been to other countries, you might note They still do it that way and putting just some kind of box out to be able to observe what's being said here in in this giving of a collection. What's the big deal about all that? One of the big deals that Paul seems to hit on and the book of Acts really hits on is that our giving is not to be done to be seen by others. Remember that with Ananias and Sapphira? What is the big deal with that? Remember, Peter says, when you sold that land and gave, you could have held some of it back. It was your money to do with as you pleased. The problem was you wanted to make it look like you had done something amazing and declared that they had given all of the proceeds of what they had sold when in fact they hadn't. Why would they do such a thing? Why would you lie about that? Oh, because then you look good. <laughs> you let everybody know. Man, I gave, I sold this property and I gave all of it. And then Peter asking Ananias, did you give all of it? Yes, drops dead. <laughs> Sapphira comes in. Did you give all of it? She says, yes, she drops dead also. That is a big problem is that God does not want this to be done for looks or for show. This is something that is very individual that would be done in such a way so that we aren't if you will, our idiom, trumpeting our own horn or letting other people know of what we've done. We don't want to do that. We're doing this out of our own heart for God, not to be seen by others. We're trying to keep that so that others won't know. The observation I want to make is that your notice here is that there's no directions on how to collect the money for this church treasury. We often use another fancy word, expedience. There's a lot of ways that we can go about doing this. We've chosen that we pass a basket. We could put out a collection box. We could all say, leave it all in your seat. You could drop it on the floor as you go. There's no determination as to how we go about doing that. Just like the command 
To go into all the world and preach the gospel means we have all kinds of different ways we can do that. We can go by car, we can go by boat, we can go by plane, we can go by space shuttle, we can go by every way that we possibly want to go in filling the command. Here in the same way, here is this command and here is this picture of giving. And we have any way that we see fit to do that. In fact, often in the wording that is given, when we take the collection up, we will often say, as a matter of expedience... Well, what are we saying? It's just kind of convenient to do that right now. So we're just going to do that right now as something that that we can accomplish at this moment. Any system that accomplishes it is going to be fine. And that's what we need to keep in mind. Just because we've done it one way, perhaps all of our lives, doesn't mean that's the only way. There's lots of ways that we can go about accomplishing what God has called us to do in this purpose. That's led to a lot of other questions. People will ask, well, what if I'm only paid once a month? What if I get paid every other week? What if I have a, don't have a job and I don't get paid? What if I only get paid when I make a sale because I live on commission? There's lots of factors that, that come involved. And here's the answer I'll give every single time. You give as you've been blessed by God. <laughs> so what does that look like for you? Well, there may be times where that's, you have nothing. And then there may be times where you have much. But what God is saying is that he wants us to be able to have that kind of recognition and awareness of what God has given for us. And so we are ready then to give based upon what we have been blessed. Put it this way. The first day of the week is not in place so that you must give even if you've never prospered. It's important to read the first day of the week you give as you've been prospered. It's not the intention to put this guilt upon you and go, well, you know, I just lost my job this week and I have absolutely nothing. Well, you need to give anyway. That's not what's being described here. It is a picture of giving. You have some kind of work situation and you only get paid at certain times because you make it on sales only. And so these three weeks were really terrible and I sold absolutely nothing and I'm getting really nervous. Okay. And then you have a great week and you sold, you know, 50 widgets. Okay, great. That's what's so amazing about the command is you give as you've been prospered. There's a recognition that God has blessed us in this very beautiful awareness of God being the one who has carried us through the week or the month and the year that he has taken care of us. I tell you, how many times have we... How many times have we been in financial circumstances where we thought, you know, I don't know how we're going to make it. I'm sure I'm not the only one. You sit there and go, man, this is tight. This is rough. And how every single time God does something and it all pans out. And you staring at the wall and you think, oh, this isn't, I'm in trouble. I don't know. And then there'll be some generous soul, some generous grandma, <laughs> some, somebody. Work does something. Something happens. And God takes care of you. And what we're doing in that is giving that recognition to God. That God, you are the reason behind that. 
You were the one that got me through. And it was really tight and it was on a string and it was literally trying to make ends meet and I just wasn't seeing how they were going to make it and we were cutting everything left and right. And then God provides and God gives the help. The first day of the week then is is the ability for us to bring that to mind, is that recognition of that, is a reminder of that, that we would come together and and remember that, that very idea. And that's what I think is then a part of this picture is that the reason why Paul told them to do that on the first day of the week, because that was the only way for them to be able to accomplish the task. It's the only way for them to be able to give as they've been prospered is that that was the time they came together. They came together every Sunday. And so on every Sunday, that's what he wanted them to do. I want to just kind of underscore for a moment that. That doesn't make it a prohibition and not for for not giving other times. I've known plenty of people who be like, uh, I, I forgot my means to give on Sunday, and so here we are on Wednesday, and they'll say, "Here, I wanted to give for Sunday because I wasn't able to." And we we, we don't say, "Well, you can't do that." <laughs> of course, you can do that. The first day of the week is a facilitating process, not a prohibition of what God is trying to get us to do. God wants us to have cheerful hearts, to be cheerful givers, to desire to do that. Sunday becomes a way that we can do that. I want to touch on one aspect of something that our shepherds had said a a few weeks ago as well. It is important for us to consider how we can continue to facilitate that process going forward. I don't know about your dealings with with bills but it seems that most people anymore have gone to automatic payment it's really nice uh we have a checkbook for two reasons my lawn guy who lives across the street (laughs) and here that's it it's the only reason we have a checking account is is nothing else uses a check anymore everything is completely completely digitized And there's an awareness and a recognition that younger people don't do that. They don't have those kinds of things. They don't have a need for that. And it's important for us to make a way for all people to be able to give as they've been prospered because God loves a cheerful giver. And so one of the things that we have done is try to facilitate that in multiple ways. And we have to be aware of that. I I speculate. I may not be alive for it. We'll see. I don't know that we'll have currency one day going forward. I kind of wonder about that. You know, you know, your money's not actually at the bank, right? It's all just numbers. <laughs> you know, it's, this is all just numbers. It's all phantom stuff anymore. It's quite funny, uh, and yet we trust that it's all going to be there. And, and yeah, until you know, Target blows up, and then there goes all the your money out the door. You know, with their uh, glitches and things like that. An awareness of where we're going in society. And it doesn't change, even though currencies change and mechanisms are changing, it doesn't change our responsibility to want to be cheerful givers, to be able to give back to the Lord as He has prospered us. And so we are trying to continue to make sure that we do that. And I believe in what we've talked about with even giving electronically is no different than just putting a box in the back and saying, all right, you've given today. Because it is an individual act, an individual decision that we are given to do across many different expedients of how we would like to do it, whether it be by basket, whether by leaving it in a pew, doing it in a box, 
as long as we have given as God has prospered to us. Now, here's the couple of conclusions I want to make, and then the lesson will be yours. I'm kind of just asking the question, what have we learned from this? What are the takeaways from this passage? Because Paul is dealing with a very specific situation that is going on with the Jerusalem Christians and the need to help. One of the things that I think we learn is that God desired a weekly consideration of the physical blessings that that we've been prospered by Him. I think that's the really big deal is that we would never go through life and we would hopefully never go through a day without recognizing that everything that we have comes from God. And what Paul did for these Corinthians is he told them and said, what I want you to do is this. What Paul said he wanted them to do is on a weekly basis make consideration of that. On the first day of the week, I want you to have that consideration. Don't forget. Remember what God has done for you. I want you to be aware of that. And that becomes very easy when we come together and we've partaken of the Lord's Supper and we are singing praises to God and we're reading from His Word that we are being mindful of all the graces of God. And we are calling that into remembrance, all the great things that He has done for us. It becomes a great day to remember not only all the spiritual blessings that God has accomplished for us, but to also remember that every physical blessing has come from God. In terms of applying this, to be able to do the things that God has called us to do here as a congregation of Christians simply requires financial resources. I've told you, I think one of the greatest blessings that we have and one of the most important things that we can do is to teach others how to teach the gospel. Uh, I love that we are able to do that. I'm kind of glad Casey and Jenna aren't here today because I can then just kind of take a side stroll for a moment. And He works really hard. <laughs> really appreciate his attitude. He's only been here four months. Yeah, I mean, a really short amount of time. And he has a very good heart. And as Dan has tried to say up here many, many times without revealing finances, he has forfeited a ton to be here. He has forfeited a ton. Things that I don't know many people be willing to forfeit financially. For us to be able to pay him a pittance and for him to have to get the most of his money from other churches and other people because we can't afford to do it financially for him ourselves altogether. It is certainly a goal that we have as a congregation that we would love to be able to be financially in a position to be able to fully support a second person to come here for two years and learn how to teach. We're not in that position. But it's amazing that we're able to do it at all. And I think it's a wonderful testimony on your part, the willingness that you all have, that you see the value in the work. And it is a joy to watch his transformation. If you were here and got to see Scott and his transformation years ago, and now we're going to have Casey do the same thing, you're just going to watch him get better and better at this and learn how to teach others, not only publicly like this, but also in reaching out and teaching Bible classes. It is a tremendous asset. But it does cost money to, to be able to do that. He has a family. He also has financial needs. And so 
one of the things that we do here is to be able to do that. Never mind to speak of all the work that we certainly want to do in reaching out. We want to be able to give people Bibles and study materials. We want to advertise. We want to do outreach. We want to continue to advertise on on the street with banners. We want to be able to continue to run the website and use it in a way to try to reach people. I've mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago just my amazement at what the website has been able to do. It's stunning to me. It's not free, but it's a wonderful tool that we're able to use. So we have all of these different things. We've talked about as the the shepherds came before you in January and talked about our hope for building expansion, long-term view of wanting to expand out the back. Short-term, we're going to take down this wall and make extra seating over there. Never mind the fact this building is about 35 years old now. It's going to need help from time to time. So we enjoy all being able to come together and worship together. We want to have a place where we can all be together. And so it's just a recognition of all these different things. Never mind that there's always to be a readiness for those who are destitute Christians, for those who need help. We see like in 1 Timothy 5, those who are truly widows indeed, that there would be a need to be able to help them, to be aware of other Christians around the country and around the world who would be in destitute situations that we could help. There's always something that is going on in a recognition of our sense of that we need to be ready to do something and, and be able to do that. Um, I'll just make an aside as well. The, the shepherds have said, if you're ever interested in discussing with them finances and things like that, they are happy to meet with you anytime about those things. For the longest time, we used to post it on, on the bulletin board. We had to take that down for a number of reasons. Uh, I'll give you one of them, uh, because one time what happened was an elder from another church came and looked through it, saw how much I was making, and then used that to try to coax me into going to another church and preach for them because they'd pay me double. I said, that's not right for you to do that. (laughs) That's not your business to do that kind of thing. That's something that's only for us. That's not for others. So... The answer has been, if you want to, to meet with the elders, I'd be happy to meet with you anytime. There's absolutely nothing to hide and be willing to go through any of the concerns that you have. One of the things that you can do is what I always do is I just look at that board every week on the way out. Because they'll put on there, here's what it was for today, and we have a weekly budget on there. You might note on your way out, the budget moved up significantly from last year. Well, one of the reasons why is Casey. <laughs> one of the reasons why is him. He's here now and we're, we're supporting him. Another reason why is we want to knock that wall down and make seating to be able to go there. So that's another reason why. We also had hurricane damage that cost money this last year, things like that. So just to be, you can also just be aware and see that there is a need. And just to have these things before your eyes, that there is a lot that we want to do. It is not our intention just to kind of sit on money, but that we're looking forward to doing as much as we can to reach out to people. And I would be remiss if I did not state how grateful I am to all of you for your financial support for me and my family. Um, When I first came here, I was already going to need outside support. And I was told that there was only enough money that we'd only be able to, for me to last for two years. That's all there was. There was just enough for me to get through about two years. And then the church would have no more money. And then we'll just kind of 
see what happens. And I was fully aware of, uh, of that circumstance. For the first six to seven years, I had to take outside support from other churches to be able to, to work here. And now you look, and not only are you fully supporting me, now we're supporting Casey to be here. We went from a situation where we didn't know what would happen when I first got here to now we're bringing in other preachers to be able to learn how to preach and go on with this. All I can say is, as a church, you have a heart to give. You all have great generosity. This is not a you-need-to-give sermon by any means. This is a, I want you to see the purpose in what we do, that it is extremely valuable. It is extremely important. I am so appreciative, and I am so encouraged by your continued graciousness all of these years. You have been financially gracious to me and my family over and over and over again to things I cannot begin to thank you enough or repay you for. You all have been absolutely amazing. And I just hope that we will continue to see the need to reach out more and more, that there is more work to be done, that we live in a county of one million people, and we are a church of a hundred, and we have a lot of work to do. And I'm hopeful to be here as long as you'll keep me to continue to do that work and to go forward and reach the lost and do everything we can to make the sound joyful to the world that Jesus saves and that we want them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful, wonderful group of Christians who have been so kind to us. I have too many preacher friends who tell me terrible stories about what they go through, and you guys are not that. So thank you for your generosity. And I pray that going forward, we'll continue to be able to do this together, continue to reach the lost, and bring people to Jesus Christ. We'll sing an invitation song now, and we invite you to come to Jesus. We invite you to see that Jesus became poor for our sake. I love how Paul words that, Second Corinthians. He became poor for our sake so that we could become rich. We enjoy so much before Him. Uh, Brandon's words at the collection I think were exactly right we probably enjoy prosperity that is historically unknown we have so much what a blessing we have and I'm grateful to God that we can use that in such a way to continue to do good work of expanding the borders of the kingdom let's continue to work together in serving God in that capacity and if you're ready to come to Jesus today turn away from your sins Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We encourage you to do that today before it's too late. Because that's the most important thing. That you have your life right with God. That you get your heart right before God. And you become an obedient servant of His. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?